when I look back on it in that first year of starting a business, I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. No. I just had this idea that I would still create some sort of magic between the disciplines and get people together in collaboration, which has always served me well. It's an intuitive way to work. Mm. It makes perfect sense to me, but it's so hard to achieve mm. in, in healthcare because we're all sort of trained in silos of mm. this is your specialty, this is what you do. My guest today is Eleanor Clausen. She's the founder and CEO of the International Spine Centre, or TISC, a pioneering medical organisation with a collaborative approach to treating spinal disorders and pain management. The business novel interdisciplinary model is designed to help patients experience life beyond pain. In addition, Eleanor founded 3D Research at DISC in 2022, an international research company focused on academic publication, clinical inquiry and innovation. 3D represents the company's philosophy of discover, develop, deliver, the three tenets of research methodology. Eleanor's career has been shaped by her creativity and thought leadership and backed by her focus on implementing people-centred change. She has a wealth of experience across clinical nursing, research and education in both public and commercial organisations, including re-engineering patient-focused care in neuroscience, which was rolled out across multiple regional health boards in the UK, pioneering design and development of the Edinburgh Pain Assessment and Management Tool, which remains the only validated cancer pain assessment tool globally, collaborating with regional health networks to deliver improved outcomes in chronic disease and strategic local and national and international levels with GSK. Welcome to Hacking Health. This podcast is for future-focused health experts, thought leaders and change makers who are interested in making health accessible for everyone because together we can get to the future faster. What do you miss most about living in Scotland? Sarah, it's a big question and I could talk a little bit about haggis and lots of Scottish things, but what what I think the thing I miss most is the quirkiness of Scottish humour. And... You never are are truly appreciative of the cultural differences until you move your life across the world. And and I adore Australian humour as well. But there's, you know, a a certain type of Scottish humour. Billy Connolly would be a very good example of that kind of humorous storytelling. You know, it's just, and you're just killing yourself laughing. I sort of sometimes miss a bit of that. Yeah. It's a certain art, I think, the Scots have of telling a self-depreciating story or an observational story, which is funny. That you don't find here. Um, Well, you do in parts, but not. I think the Scots have a certain kind of way with it. It's maybe the accent, I don't know. It might be the accent. So, you know, I don't think I've ever talked about the fact that I grew up in Scotland as well. That's right. And something that was very odd was that I went to the same primary school as your partner and in business and in life so so it's so funny I know it's like we think about that sort of thing all the connections in Australia because it's yeah. such a small country but it's you know, true. it transcends borders mm, true what was your dream job when you were a child in all honesty I can tell you that the only thing I had ever wanted to be from being a very young child was a nurse 
and it stemmed from the amazing British Ladybird book of and I had the Ladybird Book of the Nurse. That's and, so influential. And in that little book were all these amazing pictures of the nurse, you know, in her uniform and her red cape and everything. And I also had the Ladybird Book of Florence Nightingale. The images within those little children's books really, really influenced me. And uh, I, my mum found them in her attic a few years ago and sent them to me in Australia and I've got my name written on them and uh, I use it in a slide sometimes when I speak because we can underestimate the power of nursing within society sometimes even the story of Florence Nightingale mm. and what she achieved in terms of the modern nurse mm. like the, the school of nursing the mm. training of nurses she 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 was influential with Queen Victoria to achieve that and so for me, that's all I ever wanted to be. I think Florence Nightingale kind of worked out germ theory and all those oh, sorts yeah. of things. Didn't she? she was yeah. really very influential. Right. So yeah, washing of hands. Yeah, that was that was Florence yeah. Nightingale. Yeah. You know, because well, the doctors weren't washing their hands between examining in yeah. the bed. It's horrible, but they didn't wash yeah. between examining patients. And she then realised these patients were getting infections. And so there's 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 a lot in there about the story of. A flow, mm. uh, but that was my dream, my, my influence, and then I, be, you know, got to seventeen, applied to the nursing schools in Edinburgh, and that was the path of my life. So that was how it started. Obviously, it's transmogrified a little bit yeah, from there. Yeah. So you, so move from clinical work to mm. education, change mm. management, mm. and mm. now executive mm. management. Really, yeah. yeah. How did that? process happened? It was interesting because I would say that late 80s, early 90s in Edinburgh nursing was a heady time for us. I didn't ever have a linear nursing career. Opportunities came just through networking and relationships and I don't know, I was a rebel. <laughs> I was a rebel. I would look at things with, with patients and think, can we do better? Mm. How could we do better? And I, you know, wanted to be a neuroscience nurse. I was really passionate about neurosurgery. I just loved it. It was tough. And the anatomy was hard to learn. And then I did my neuroscience training in London and came back to Edinburgh. And during that time, opportunity came to employ some management consultants. The chief nurse of Scotland, I wrote a letter to her. And with my nursing manager, we started a project and we got the first funding um, in Scotland to do a re-engineering project, which was amazing. And mm. these management consultants came in and I got to come off the wards and worked as a, a project nurse. And uh, it was hugely creative. And mm. we did all these time and motion studies and it was humbling in a, in a uh, academic national neuro unit to hear the patient's stories. And uh, some of the things that you think you know really well about your own specialty and your own unit. We discovered in the time and motion studies that the most communication with a patient was through the ward domestic and the porter. Ah. You think it's going to be nurses and doctors yes, or allied health or the physios or the OT or the speech therapist or the dietitian and whatever, but no. And we started looking at agile processes. So that work stood me in good stead for the implementation of strategic change management in documentation design, care pathways, you know, all of these things. 
and also the advent of, of advanced clinical practice nurses and nurse specialists and the ability to look at a sort of hybrid role between medicine and nursing and so I became one of the first in Scotland in that role and that was radical, mm. really radical to come out of uniform um, and be this, you know, sort of person so close to a patient and their family and, and uh, with a, a whole range of clinical tasks that the neurosurgeons at that time taught me which nurses didn't do, you know. So it was really exciting. And that led to lots of papers and presentations and opportunities to speak at, you know, medical meetings where nurses had never really been afforded time mm. um, and sort of flying the flag for for the impact that, that you know, I suppose as nurses we could have. Mm, that hadn't been... Yeah appreciated before yeah. and going to Europe and speaking and yeah. encouraging all the junior nurses as well in presentation skills and that sort of can-do attitude love so it that was me through the the 90s and 2000s and so then what led you I suppose the next step, step of that is your like entrepreneurial life where you yeah, established yeah, yeah, a yeah. private practice and came to Adelaide yeah came to Adelaide yeah. and it's a mm a different sort of practice as well. So mm -hmm. tell me about that. So I'd spoken at the British Pain Society in London on cancer pain because I'd been doing a bit of work and, and had been involved in, in a major opportunity of designing a cancer pain assessment tool. The cancer pain assessment tool is called the Edinburgh Pain Assessment Tool yes. and remains the only validated cancer tool for assessment in the world. And I bolted on algorithms of management and in the audience were some doctors from Adelaide. And then they discovered when they got back to Adelaide that the neurosurgeon that they were working with in the pain unit, who was a pain fellow as well as a neurosurgeon, had worked with me in Edinburgh. So there was this sort of funny connection like we've just spoken yeah. about with you in Edinburgh and Adelaide and everything. And uh, some of our trainees used to come for a year to Adelaide and they invited me over and I did a piece of work uh, at that point in SA Health. And I sort of then came back to do another piece of work looking at disciplines and how we could all work together closely. And then neurosurgeon then convinced me that I really ought to come to Adelaide. And I was a bit shocked, but he convinced me to come. And so I applied for a nursing visa mm -hmm. and over a come over, jump over the, the world. I sat in and listened to patients in that first year. So say I've been in Adelaide now 11 years and the company International Spine is 10 years old. But in that first year, I just sat and listened to the patients and I was just really compelled to be able to, to do something different for them in this city. Mm. Uh, and so I started the business on the extension of my credit card because I couldn't get a business loan. Wow, you were a new arrival. And that Still was this that entrepreneurial point. thing yeah. of... You know, these patients are, the care seemed to me to be so fragmented. They yes. were jumping all over the city, across all these specialties, sometimes really unaware of their diagnosis and what the treatment plan might be. Mm. And I thought, gosh, it's just like being a pinball in a pinball machine. Mm. And some of the specialties don't speak to each other. There may, may, may be very limited communication or clinical letters. And that's when I really started thinking about what could I do, taking that breadth of you know, knowledge in my mm. career and change management and, you know, the delivery of care. What mm. could the model be? 
and then that advanced practice in, in nursing, you know, could, could I achieve it? I could achieve it in Australia by starting a business because really you don't really see so much nurse specialty or advanced practice. Mm. The healthcare system is so different compared yeah. to the US or Europe. Okay, yeah. So the easiest way for me to really affect change was to start a company. And I did. I know. It's like, I feel like you always had this understanding or drive to be able to do things differently for better outcomes. Mm. Even like mm. when you mm. were very first yeah. practicing yeah. as a nurse. Yeah, yeah. But then being an entrepreneur, you really can take it to a whole nother level, can't you? Because you, right. yeah. I mean, it's highly regulated industry, but you can invent things that have never been done before, like international spine is. That's right. And so the interdisciplinary model is a novel model. We see some uh, probably more limited examples of it globally, maybe Sweden or the US and whatever, but not, not to the degree of, of the experimentation that we've had at International Spine. And when I look back on it in that first year of starting a business, I didn't know that that's what I was going to do. No. I just had this idea that I would still create some sort of magic between the disciplines and get people together in collaboration, which has always served me well. It's an mm. intuitive way to work. Mm. It makes perfect sense to me, but it's so hard to achieve mm. in, in healthcare because we're all sort of trained in silos of mm. this is your specialty, this is what you do. But in general, talking about healthcare, if we look to other industries, you can see that the model's applicable, you know, whether it's an architectural practice mm. where you have an interior design, an engineer, mm. you know, a, a landscape designer, mm. a builder, you know, the operating model of an interdisciplinary practice mm. and the change in culture, mm. perhaps the energy that it takes as a leader to create the culture where people are prepared to to reduce perhaps some of that professional barrier for the good of the customer. Mm. It's thinking differently. So that for me, it's the patient is putting them in the first. middle. Yeah. And the services can rotate around that patient, mm. but they're all held together by an operating system, which I call the 3C approach, which is you know about collaborative care. But creating that culture has been an enormous business challenge mm. um, and uh, enormous personal energy. Mm. Are we swimming against the tide in the way that healthcare is delivered in terms of you know models of care, mm. care delivery? And so I, ne I really needed early adopters in, in the first couple of years. And it was really very, very difficult mm. to achieve that. Yeah. You had to have people that would believe in the vision. Mm. And you've got to sell that vision as the That's leader. Right. Yeah. So we're talking about health tech a little bit and yes. med tech on yes. this podcast. Yeah. And I was excited yeah. to talk to you because you talk so passionately about yeah. Yeah. a particular robot that's that right. you're yeah. hoping to yeah. bring yeah. to Adelaide. Absolutely. Can you talk a bit about that? So I think as a futurist leader, we can talk about care delivery models and, and customer experience and all of those things. But in addition to that, technology is just a fascinating, the speed of technology is just fascinating. And we should always be open to adopting new techniques in patient care. And what's been been challenging is that in other areas of the world technology is really being adopted 
at, at, at quite a pace. Mm -hmm. And uh, Australia has been adopting, and some regions of Australia has been adopting some of the, the more, more contemporary technology. But in Adelaide, um, so far, uh, we have been early adopters of some ro robotic... Mm, I um, remember the Da Vinci. Yeah, the Da Vinci. And um, Adelaide was the first city in Australia to have the Da Vinci. Mm. It was a philanthropic donation that, 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 that enabled that to happen. Uh -huh. And it's quite a different robot to the spinal robot because the spinal robot is a navigation platform as well, integrated with it. And um, to my, my learning was, was fascinated me because it's actually called a cobot because it is the collaboration between the human and the technology. Ah. So the technical term is cobot and the surgeon is always in control yes. of it because the navigation platform allows that, um, you know, like we used to laugh when you had tom-toms years ago and you just about took you off a cliff. Yeah. Well, when you think about navigation for surgery, the precision of navigation Required. in tiny millimetre, you know, millimetres within the spinal cord. But it just takes a lot of cognitive load from the surgeon, the planning and education with the patient to be able to let you see your MRI and where some of those implants are going in to stabilise the spine. The lack of radiation in theatre because, mm -hmm. you know, so many x-rays are taken in standard open procedures. It's less trauma because any surgery is actually a trauma to tissue. Mm. Uh, and, you know, surgeons do get cancers of the eyes and the shins, mm. you know, where the lead aprons don't protect. And, you know, we're getting a bit better with that. But if you think a patient themselves may actually have radiation exposure in that big long operation, yeah. of which a spinal operation could be 10 or 12 hours, we can reduce that by three or four with the cobot and what used to take hours to get the metal work in can be done in minutes. It's incredible. And minimal, minimally invasive. Mm. But secondly, I think what's interesting is those theatre nurses and doctors and radiologists and everybody who's all in theatre, they're exposed to radiation even with their lead aprons mm. all, all the time. So so there's many compelling reasons why why the cobot would be a, an amazing acquisition for Australia. Now, there were two when I started the campaign, and now there are five. But South Australia, we still don't have. Right. And then we could talk about endoscopic spine and day case. You know, the whole world is converted to day case spinal operations. So what does that mean? That just means that you're, that you're able to use keyhole surgery, literally keyhole oh, so surgery, to out. get to the spine and... and, and in tiny little apertures and unfortunately for Australia, I would say unfortunately, because the health funds, the health fund modelling is based on a three night stay. Right. So the private hospitals are paid for three nights. Yes. So whilst the whole of the world is moving towards day case, you know, nobody wants to be in hospital for any longer no, than they want they to be. To. Certainly post-Covid, we're mm. very um, aware of infection and not wanting to be in hospitals because mm. of infection or whatever. So really my campaign is, you know, we have amazingly qualified, technically expert surgeons mm. that actually require the technology. And that's that's before I even begin to talk about some of our work in AI and AI in healthcare and the opportunity that AI can enhance some of our health outcomes. Well, tell us about that. So... It's interesting, there's a couple of courses just now between Harvard and MIT looking at AI and healthcare. Some of the radiology practices are already looking at some of those large data modules mm -hmm. where we're looking at x-rays 
chest x-rays, mammograms and things, actually the AI can, you know, can say this is normal. You know, these, these, these x-rays are absolutely normal, but this is one that you need to worry about right. versus that of a consultant radiologist. Mm. And so, so some of the larger radiology practices are already running um, the bulk of their, their x-rays through AI. And then if you think about that, it's a revolution, isn't it? In yeah. time management. Yeah. Because then it's just actually picking that which is not normal. I feel like that's the same with the cobot where you can actually yeah. Yeah. see more patients. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. it takes less time. Yeah, well, you would be able to have higher volume through theatre. Yeah, which is better for That's right. people. Yeah, and waiting lists and, and, and everything. Mm. So, yes, AI in healthcare is really, it's, it's absolutely fascinating thinking about how we might actually then begin to look at how we measure outcomes. What if we, as, as the best trained people with, you know, advanced skills and courses and knowledge, if all that amalgamated data went together, and it began to tell us actually things that we could be missing, mm. like predicting mm. longevity or, you know, the, the, the prediction that sort of, we talk about prehabilitation in surgery, which is a huge, enormous part of what we should be doing. We shouldn't just be focusing on the surgery. We need to be focusing on the whole patient journey and yes. optimising health and mental health up to the point of, of surgery if surgery is indicated, but surgery may not be indicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, in one, one in 10 patients in spine, one in 10 would be an average conversion to surgery. And nine of those patients don't need surgery, yes. but they need, you know, pain intervention or psychology or yeah. meditation or hypnosis or, you know, physio. physio. You know, there could be a whole host mm. of things that we can offer that can help that mm. person suffering. And when you look at AI, they could be predicting things that we just don't, that we just don't actually no. know. Yeah. And they could be predicting things earlier that would change the course of that patient journey. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. It is, isn't it? It is. So in your current role, yeah. what are the most significant challenges you face in advancing patient care? How do you envision addressing these challenges in the future? Because I do mm -hmm. think you are always very future focused. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we could talk a little bit about... <sighs> I suppose there's economic factors mm -hmm. and the cost of the of delivering healthcare and certainly the cost of delivering healthcare in our particular point in history post-COVID, mm. cost of living, mm. you know, cost of health funds and, and, and all of those things are a particular challenge in healthcare, certainly amongst general practice, mm. but also in specialist practice mm. as well, that it's... It's not that you don't want to be able to achieve lots, and we're obviously using a lot, a lot of our margin, you know, to run our international research mm. and and everything else. Um, but you could really run as a not-for-profit, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so how does the international research yeah. work within your group? Yeah. Well, we started the company three years ago. It's been quite a phenomenal direction to go in because we. We have about 1,800 episodes of care per month at International Spine. So if you imagine that sort of cohort of patients from age 14 to, I think our oldest patient was 97, 98. Wow. It's amazing. And 80% of Australians will have a, some sort of challenge or difficulty with their spine at any point in their life. So none of us are really immune to a spinal problem no. or back pain. Cross our fingers that we don't get one. But still... 
if you think about the cohorts of patients coming through, and then particularly from the US, Australia has really come on the radar for international research because of pressures within Europe mm -hmm. and the US. And also our TGA is super rigorous. Mm. And so if, if an implant or various other, you know, maybe a pharmaceutical agent or, or something of that nature is rubber stamped by the TGA, mm. that fast tracks it through the FDA. Oh. And, so, and so for us, we had this interdisciplinary model and so if, if we were measuring the outcome or, you know, looking at, I was speaking about back pain and diabetes, for instance, 80% mm -hmm. of diabetic patients will deliver, will, will, will develop some form of chronic low back pain or indeed neuropathic or nerve pain in the legs. So we're, lo we're looking at, you know, a spinal cord stimulator just for diabetic patients at the moment to help them with their pain because they can't sleep at night. It keeps mm. you awake all night. It's dreadful. So the, the research work has taken us in directions in pain management that I couldn't have envisaged. Mm. But through that academic inquiry, it's been interesting because what's attracted many people to work with us is the interdisciplinary model. Mm. Because then you're able to measure from a movement perspective or a mind perspective, mm. the surgical perspective. And so much more data. Yeah. That's, That's right, you collect. You know, and, and across all the disciplines, whether it's psychology, counselling, the dietitian, exercise, physiology, physio, uh, and plus all the medical specialties. So therefore, it was unexpected for mm. me when people, and then people were asking me about pathways of care. And I said, well, we intentionally design a patient journey on a pathway. Well, you can then bolt on research methodology onto that. So, you know. I'm delighted. I'm delighted. That it was absolutely an delighted. unexpected. Yeah. And whilst I always had this sort of future pioneering yeah. spirit to be able to integrate that into our work, mm. uh, it sort of, uh, you know, just brought a, a further excitement to the possibilities of, of helping people now and in the future as well. Well, we've talked about your experience sort of starting out clinically moving towards change management then starting a business and really becoming very entrepreneurial in healthcare what would you say your one hack is for entrepreneurs having been one now for 10 years okay i would say my one hack is that as you're building your relationships the most important thing is actually to to do what you're going to, you know, you say what you're going to, to mm. do, you do what you're going to say because you meet so many people, you form these relationships and you sort of live or die by your integrity, Sarah. Mm. And um, when we're going through, so many people come through your life, um, you have to kind of sometimes take a bit of a step back and then have the ability to say in that relationship, is it, you know, is that something you're always going to nurture? And I've, I've found it, I don't think being an entrepreneur is without it, it's personal pain, mm. you know, because you then have to become so aware of the human psychology. Mm. There's a darker side to it where people always want a bit of you or, or, or um, there's something in it for them. People always have an agenda and they mm. try that agenda, but you have to always try and live by, you know, doing what you say. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so true. I think a hack is just to, if I could share anything, is just to be so acutely aware 
of your relationship management uh, and and to be able to just be true you know both to yourself to mm. walk away when you need to walk away mm. uh, and listen to your intuition in in that about the people that you're connecting with mm. the people who are genuinely on your side and those who are not yep it's beautiful i love it thanks so much for coming in today thank you we're going to keep the conversation going in our private Facebook group, You Legal for Doctors. You're welcome to join us there.